podcast to magically disappoint your parents. It's a Broadway show in here. <laughs> so we're back. And um, we're shaking. We're shaking. We're pulling it together after work again. Mm-hmm. And we have a special guest with us today. Yeah. A We're very, gonna, very special guest. We'll, we'll, we'll hold on to the uh, veil for the big reveal. <laughs> I'm doing, because no one can see it, I'm doing the evil hand thing right now where they yeah. like twiddle their fingers together. So we didn't super preview what we're going to talk about and we'll get into that, but we like to always honor our fans um, because we wouldn't truly exist without your uh, your time and listening. So we wanted to shout out to one of the letters that came through. Um, Wait, at, my heart. Okay, I, I need a second. Prepare emotionally. Okay, go. <laughs> All right, so this one's by at Danny LaPaz. So listening to your beauty standards, and I'm crying over here. I blame colon- colon- colonialization. Man, I can't Colonization. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> and Carno Brutal, or Ooh. as my cousins in the PI would say, we love brutally grow a thicker skin. That has like a, that has kind of a, uh, that kind of compliment-ish, kind of, right? Hang on. Uh, Yeah. Love brutally, so grow a thicker skin. So. Mm, It's like, you know, like, I get what they're trying to say, you know, like. Like we're helping you develop, but we're. Mm, but we're not. But we're like, it's like that parental, like, oh well, you're gonna learn by me, like smacking you a bunch of times, and yeah. your skin will just grow thicker. Callus, it's good for you. Yay! No. Yeah, it gives not. me mixed feelings about that. Um, I don't. It kind of yeah. rubs me the wrong way, but not you, uh, not Danny LaPaz. No, 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 but just definitely. Like, but I've definitely heard that saying before. You know, thick skin is good for you in a way, but I mean. Is it also trauma and trauma and you know continuing like you know bad toxic behaviors in like you know just relationships and the community? Just saying, just saying, just saying, just saying, you're making it normal. Just me. All right. So, what do you think of that, Rose? I feel like we need to really develop an idea of that when you tell people this again it's like we were saying like you're kind of enforcing and perpetuating trauma as like a good thing right you know and but you're also not addressing like the fact that this continued behavior is just is continuously bad for mental health yeah i mean it says your feelings aren't valid it's just like take it yeah just take it as it is Mm. like suck it up i I hate that right you've heard it i hate that when people tell me that you know but doesn't also relate to a lot of things that like you hear like men being told yeah especially within our community that's a good segue my friend let's reveal what we're doing (laughs) so you know who's here who is all right (laughs) part of these like i'm so sorry for you but but you know, he's used to it by now. By you, that is. So, welcome our first guest, our first male-identified guest here, Constancio Arnaldo. Correction, Dr. Constancio Arnaldo. Please, introduce yourself, what you identify as, you know, a little bit about you, some fun facts, maybe. Three fun facts. Three fun facts. So, first of all, thank you for having me. <laughs> it, it really is an honor to share this space with you, and... Um, to talk about myself in ways that I've never had to do before publicly. Mm. Um, so I really am honored to be here. And to you listeners out there, um, thank you for supporting this really important podcast. They are two fierce Pinais, Pinai exes. So thank you. Um, so three, you said three things? Three, three fun facts. Three fun facts about myself. 
Um, a, I love to cook. Um, I love my dog, Smokey. Great dog. He's a Maltese poodle. And I love my po partner, uh, Dr. Norma Maru. Cheesy. <laughs> I love it. I really, I want to really delve into that. Those choices of three fun facts because you said you love these three things. And I don't think that a lot of Filipino men get to say that or feel comfortable saying mm -hmm. love. Right? Especially mm -hmm. that word. Like terms of endearment that are not necessarily like... I feel like there's this thing that happens where you're kind of omitting those things and like in the only the dire like dire consequences I feel like and this is what multi, like media tends to do like in general is that you can only show this adoration this vulnerability and emotion like during a dire time it's like when do you need that on the day when you actually need that on the daily basis like but moving forward from that, um, also, Dr. Arnaldo makes bomb lumpia. Yeah. Like or, vegan lumpia. I didn't know I could eat a pumpkin in there, and I love it. <laughs> it so was a surprise to have, like, oh, squash. <laughs> this was new. But here's another thing that, like, uh, Constancio didn't uh, mention as well. Uh, you're a feminist, huh? Yes, yes. I identify as a feminist, uh, particularly women of color feminism. Mm, um, so, women. like, the folks that have inspired me, and I, and I think it's important to acknowledge the, the folks that have inspired me or influenced me when I was in grad school. Um, mm -hmm. I had mentioned Dr. Norma Maroon, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Johanna Amaran, um, Dr. Daya Mortel, Dr. Lorenzo Perillo, uh, Dr. Lonnie Tevis. These were folks that really opened my eyes to what the possibilities of feminism could be. And then, like, inspired by Gloria Anzaldúa, Audrey Lord uh, and Yuri Kuchiyama. Those are just a couple of folks, but I wanted to put them out in the universe because I think they've really shaped and had a lot to do with me um, kind of developing as a male-identified feminist. So concerning that shift, because um, I feel like when we all get into this idea of a, or understanding a feminist conscious, as they say, right? Mm -hmm. um, when As you're developing that, how, what were some things that were like concepts that you had to like, you know, really ingrain and identify with within our culture as a Filipino? Before I, mm -hmm. I came into consciousness, mm -hmm. I mean, it was like, I think for me, it's when I was, you know, I was playing sports. Mm -hmm. So I was born into a very um, masculinist space, right? And so mm -hmm. I wasn't really allowed to cry. I wasn't allowed to show vulnerability or weakness. Um, I was supposed to kind of be strong and tough for my, you know, for my teammates or yeah. even in front of my family. Um, and so that's kind of how I was exposed to masculinity mm -hmm. um, in ways that it was very rigid. So I couldn't, you know, I couldn't um, experience the full range of my humanity um, only within the rigid confines of kind of sporting context. I think wow. what was really interesting that I like because it's about being human right too mm -hmm. and I feel like there's this there's this hierarchy that is put up obviously there's a hierarchy you right. know but, but especially within patriarchy or like you know as we know patriarchy if we don't know what patriarchy is <laughs> I mean how long have you been listening on this show right I mean there is Google <laughs> or maybe we'll so... throw it on an Instagram post to help you out but it's like this dehumanization of like you know like 
manhood of mm-hmm. like you know strong you know impervious to emotions and blah 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 and so like I'm, I appreciate you sharing that with us so going from there as you were shifting you know what were things that now you probably were shifting in behavior wise like maybe with family members or like with partners yeah. um like Telling myself that I could be vulnerable mm-hmm. and that I could tell people that I love them, like and and not like love your bro, but like yeah. I love you. Yeah. So Huge I think that's difference. something that you know I'm the youngest of three boys. Um, wow. The bunso. I'm the bunso. Bunso. <laughs> yeah, and so like telling my brothers Nat and Chris that I love you, um, and giving them a hug and being okay with it. I think that was one of the things that I've I've shifted. Um, and just being more reflective about my own male privilege. Like, I've got, That's I benefit huge. from patriarchy. Huge. And so I think um, acknowledging that I benefit from um, being a male and actually working within this system to, to change it, however small. Um, so those are a couple of things that allowed me to kind of shift. Do you think that impacts, like, how your parents see you as you're kind of making this, uh, you're mm-hmm. adopting this kind of new identity. Like, do they start to see a shift in you or do they try to push you back into the rigid uh, masculinity? Um, I don't know. Like, I've, I've never had a conversation with my brothers or my mom or stepdad about it. Right. I just, I think I just, I do it through my, like, praxis, my everyday yeah. life. It's um, subtle. Yeah, yeah but, but being very intentional about it. Like, um... So yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know if I could answer that question, but I've had conversations with some of my family members, some of my cousins, um, you know, intimate conversations that we've had that I don't I don't share with anybody else, but mm. we've we've definitely had these conversations and it's you know, they're small, I guess small conversations, but I think they're important conversations. That's huge because we, you know, a lot of our episodes at the end, the solutions me and Rose have come up with is like talk to your family because it really starts at home. And so you being on here kind of shows um, it's doable, it's practical, and it's it, these kind of conversations can exist. So um, a lot of our past episodes, we talked about how colonization has affected um, Panais in particular. Can you, mm-hmm. you know, with your background um, in academia, can you for, give men um, or those identifying as men context, uh, historical context for in the Filipino culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, so I think we have to look at, you know, Spanish colonialism. I mean, what is it, three, over 350 years of colonization, <laughs> um, how the Catholic Church was institutionalized um, as a religion in the Philippines. More recently, when the U.S. colonized the Philippines, starting in like 1898, 1899, mm-hmm. um, there was definitely a way in which uh, colonized Filipino men were seen as lesser than white men. Um, and so back, like, during U.S. colonialism in the Philippines, Filipino men were, like, were seen as houseboys. And so they were called muchachos. Now, muchachos isn't a word that we use in, like, I don't know, in Tagalog, is it? Or, uh, Not, anymore. Dialect, right? Not anymore. Not yeah. anymore. Um, and so they were basically the servants to um, these white men who were the rulers of, like, the household. Um, in the U.S. Navy, my my late father, who passed away, um, 
1985. He mm -hmm. worked as a cook in the U.S. Navy. A lot of my uncles were cooks in the U.S. Navy. My uncle too. Yeah, but so crazy. They <laughs> Filipino Navy men could not actually, at one point, could not get officer status. So they were subordinates mm -hmm. to the white men that they served. Um, there was a there was not a recent case, but there was a case where it was like I think it was Inre Alberto, mm -hmm. who tried to gain U.S. citizenship. He couldn't get citizenship, uh, and so he, he was trying to get U.S. citizenship because he had said, I served in the military, but the U.S. denied him citizenship. So if we think right. about, like, military masculinity uh, by Filipino men, they couldn't actually claim Americanness. They yeah. couldn't gain citizenship. So mm -hmm. um, these are just a couple of examples of how colonialism shapes Filipino-slash-Filipino-American masculinity, and... And in that process of trying to claim something, they were denied. I can really see this play out in today, you know, where um, Filipino men have to exude their masculinity just mm -hmm. in their relationship with women, how they address us, um, what their preference is and whatnot. And to give, yeah. I really, I'm really thankful for that historical context because if there have been years of impact on what our feminine task, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, where do I put this displaced, angry energy um, you know, women, Filipino women, or those of us who identified as, are the deposits, right? Like, you know, n not that I think that's okay, but it's kind of been happening. It's a pattern that we're seeing here. Um, if they're second class, then who do they get to treat as second class? Mm -hmm. So that's huge. And remind me of my grandfather, because um, here's the thing. So everyone on the show who has listened, if you're just clicking on this again, just out of nowhere, I'm judging you, but um, has known that I had, my family is mainly consisted of women, and uh, I'm estranged from my father, like from what, what you've talked about before, but um, obviously still strong tones of masculinity. However, my mother, uh, my grandfather, uh, he was a captain um, in the Navy uh, back during World War II. And then when everyone was applying for, you know, American citizenship or trying to get access, he refused to try it or even attempt to go ahead and do it. He told my mother, and she was seven years old when this, when like my mom was like, why not? Why aren't we going to go to America? You know, he just said, I don't want to be a slave to the Americans. Literally said that word for word. I don't want to be a slave to the Americans. So like my mom told me like it was probably just a treatment during the war you know mm -hmm. like because you have these interactions between Americans at this time alongside as allies but does that mean as long like these proximities to whiteness does that equal equal treatment at right. all or right. acknowledgement so thinking about that like is also connecting to like my history and probably seeing how like these things affected like these ideas of Americanness, and then again connecting them back to masculinity. So, like, yeah, I'm just like, damn, damn. I have, I, you know, mm. and so I'm thinking about in the past with Navy and men, and I'm thinking about Constancio's generation of men and sports. Were there a lot of other Filipino men in these sports teams? Yeah, historically, um, so I just got done reading a book called Vanishing Filipino Americans. And wow. it was written by Peter Jamero, who was a second-generation Filipino-American who grew up in, like, the 40s. Yeah, 40s. And so they established these sports leagues because Filipinos were not allowed in mainstream sports spaces. Right. So they created their own sports leagues. And even Filipinas. So, like, yep. there's a youth league called 
the Filipino Mango, Mango Club of San Francisco um, that like would play in the 40s and 50s and then the Mangoettes started a team Whoa. and so like thinking about like sports not just being for men but actually Pinais would form these sports leagues and so um, that generation was like claiming Americanness through sports right because they were not they were locked out of other spaces so it was them for them to kind of carve out their ethnic identity but also to claim spaces for themselves um, in American society right this I'm sorry like why is this you're getting us a lot to think about because you're really like you know when I used to play street ball with my brother we would all sit by the court and you know even if we really loved the game like um, we would always talk about well there's no way none of us can make it to the NBA I mean we would even be in admiration of the tallest Filipino when we were sit sitting there and but um, we and I remember being everyone being so excited when we had a coach on the Miami Heat, but no one really in the NBA. And so even to this day, like, and we know that there's a lot of us who play the game, um, but still haven't cut that ceiling. And thinking about sports masculinity and how that relates to like, you know, Filipinos, Philippine exes, like mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, you know, Pacquiao mm -hmm. and like how like people like, Back when Pacquiao was like really big, I remember having uh, like you know my family would have like these boxing tournament, you know like parties. It's huge. They still have them. And like mm -hmm. and like that was like full Filipino masculinity to the extent that I would see it happening right. in my living room and everyone like cheering and just getting angry and just like kind of letting like yeah, <laughs> yeah. smile. I was like yeah, it's like wow, like so kind of like. Like, because I know, like, this was part of your research mm -hmm. and, like, things that you have written about. Like, can you, like, can you give, like, maybe a little snippet about, like, you know, maybe relations to boxing, Pacquiao a little bit? Right. So, you know, thinking about, um, was it Danny LaPaz's mm -hmm. comments about colonialism? Mm -hmm. So the Americans actually introduced boxing to Filipinos. What? So they learned boxing as a craft in the Philippines, and then they would do really well, they would become really good fighters, and then they would go from the Philippines to Australia to fight, and then from the Philippines to the U.S. So there's a book called Creating Masculinity in Los Angeles' Little Manila, written by wow. uh, Dr. Linda Spanyamaram, who actually writes about these boxers in the early 20th century. So the Manong generation, the early, uh, I guess, wave of Filipino immigrant workers, a lot of them were men. And so they would actually fill these, like, boxing arenas to cheer on their countrymen. So, like, Seferino Garcia, Pancho wow. Villa. So Pacquiao was not, he's not a new phenomenon. This has been mm. happening for years. And so, um, again, kind of thinking about masculinity, it was a way for them to claim some kind of masculinity by cheering on these really good boxers. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the historical context. So I write about... Manny Pac-Man Pacquiao. Um, you know, I've done ethnographic research about him. I've gone to a number of his, of his fights, um, either closed circuit or live. Mm. And so my research interest is not actually talking to him, but talking to the fans that cheer for him or kind of critique him. Um, and so, you know, and I say critique because He's supposed to kind of embody the nation, right? The whole, the diasporic right. nation. But, like, what does it mean when 
he makes these homophobic comments in right. 2012 and mm -hmm. 2016. And so I'll never forget when I've interviewed um, a Filipinx American um, student recently, and you know, she was like, "He doesn't, he doesn't represent me because he's excluding me from what it means to claim Filipino, mm -hmm. Filipinx, and Filipinx American." Um, and so, while Pacquiao is definitely someone that folks are inspired by, like he's inspiring, you know, like he he's he wins a lot, and he's he's representing. Um, in some ways, the nation, the Philippine nation, it's very contradictory. And so I think we have to take into account the contradictions um, in claiming him as something um, that represents the nation. That's good advice. It's so deep. I'm like, I'm like in shock already. Right? I'm like, dang. It's good advice because, you know, some of our listeners have been around in spaces or mm -hmm. family celebration spaces where there is just the we already prescribe com immediately, like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is our one athlete, right? Like, this this happens, right? Like, we really celebrate this one token because we think that's all that we have. Um, you know, as when I was talking to high schoolers, it's like, does Bruno Mars have to be the only music representation that we prescribe to? Or Pacquiao, like, I'm sure, you know, we have other people in fighting and all this stuff. Yeah, it's just, and that also limit limits us. Like, what are the possibilities of us being the representative or you know, representing our own, so. I mean, it mm. reminds me too, like, someone sent me a, an article about these Filipinas in California that have their own Escrima Club. Yes, like, so I've like, seen that. That's really cool, and yeah. like, I, I, forgive me, audience, for not remembering who they are, but like, if you can look them up, do a Google search, mm -hmm. like, it, it's really cool to see, like, how sports isn't just reserved for men or male-identified bodies. Um, that Pinais can actually engage in sports in, mm -hmm. in ways that transgress what we think of as sports for just men. And Eskrima, just because, like, again, my proximity to, like, like, my culture, you know, like, again, that is the martial art, right? Mm -hmm. Like, of, like, traditional Filipino arts, right? Right. Ah, uh, okay. So, talking about this also kind of puts me a little back trying to think about like you know colonization masculinity and like the, that history and those roots knowing that boxing kind of derives from american culture and then like prescribing to that as a filipino in order to kind of it's like this proximity that we're trying to get to right we're trying to get close to the white line but we're never going to get really get there right mm -hmm. so like i'm trying to think sometimes sometimes i try to think how do we how do filipinos pre-colonization and then post try to relate traditional values of masculinity to like you know the you know current uh status quo in a way does it make sense so i'm like in ways what did they use in order to substitute for what they define as masculinity and then what are things that traditionally are still being enforced from tradition like from our definitions before colonization so I think there's one example, and I forgot who sent it to me, but somebody had highlighted uh, these indigenous Filipinos, like it was like a picture or an image, and I, I'm trying to remember how I got it, but it was an image of these Filipino indigenous men that were actually child-rearing. So they were like wow. having the babies on their backs. And so like that was, I, and I, I'm not sure if it's still happening now, but it's like how can we imagine, how can we decolonize Right. You know, Western forms of masculinity. I think we can look to maybe what was happening 
before colonization. That's one. And two, just kind of like trying to think about your own privilege, positionality um, in this gender system, right? So uh, what are small acts of resistance where we can challenge when people say really sexist things or homophobic things? Mm-hmm. Um, those are just kind of a few things that we can kind of think about. Yeah. So that's a pretty good segue into like following like what can we do solution-wise, right? So how have you managed to go ahead and, you know, come up with acts of maybe small resistances, whether that be between familial relationships, maybe like work relationships, if you're uh, comfortable saying that, um, or any kind of uh, way you have had to navigate in the space that is the U.S.? Like, if I could contextualize what Rose is saying, like, has there ever been, like, a moment among your brothers or um, Mm -hmm. male friends who, you know, do a microaggression about being effeminate or have some kind of thing to say about Filipino men being effeminate? This is why I love Jean for being my translator. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because, you know, growing up when we would play street balls, you know, they'd be like, oh, you're gay, you're gay, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right, if you didn't play hard enough. Right, so I don't know if you've experienced something similar. Like maybe if you were being too affectionate or caring, did you ever have, like you know, something derogatory thrown your way? You know. Hmm. Not recently, but I will say, and I hope that my brother forgives me. But I do want to. So I want to use him as an example, and I think this is an, an example that I was really like. It's small, but it's kind of like an everyday life conversation that he was having with his son. So my brother was, you know, my nephew's like 11, maybe 12. Mm -hmm. And he was, my brother was talking to him about liking girls, right? But he was like, you know, if you like girls or boys, that's fine, right? And so I think the fact that he added boys, like, tells you that, like, he's not raising his son to be a homophobe. That's huge. It's okay to like boys in ways... And girls in ways that are like, that it's not, if you're a boy, you have to like girls, right? And so I was like, wow. I mean, it was small, but I think it's a really great example of like, that's huge. Not not reinforcing homophobia in our families. Right. Because in, you know, my generation of growing up, it was like, oh, that person's bakla, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, damn, like, odds are stacked already against. I mean, why talk about or ever tell your parents? So I think that's huge, huge. And I think that's a great way to go ahead and create these small forms of resistance that are beginning to happen, especially if you want to ally and if you are a man, you know, in the community. Because I feel like a lot of people, like men, try to find a good step of like, okay, well, I understand I'm being problematic. How can I be better? So, like, just probably small steps, right? So, what are some small steps that you have taken before? Um, So, I'll give you another example. So, we were, it was some of my colleagues and I, we were at, like, we were speaking at, I think it was an Anapesi or McNair Mm -hmm. um, workshop. Mm -hmm. This was probably a couple years ago, and there was a Filipina-American that directed her question at me. And she was like, you know, how do I confront the fact that I'm a woman trying to go to grad school and my parents uh, don't, they want me to kind of follow the traditional careers of what Filipinos are expected to do. 
she was like, do you have any advice? And I said, you know, I really don't have any advice because I, I grew up with a lot of privilege, right? Like, I was a boy. Oh, I had all this access to, like, going out late. And, like, I was never called into question about where I was going. And so I was honest and I said, I don't, I, because I have this privilege, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I said, maybe, and so I think there was other female panelists. I said, if, if y'all have any kind of, um, you know, advice for her, that'd be great. But I don't feel like I could speak for your experience because I have not experienced that myself. So if I could analyze what you just said, I think you gave three great solutions to our listeners. Um, you held space for, you know, something that you didn't know. You didn't mansplain. Mm -hmm. um, and third, um, you recognize your privilege, not in a way that negates either party, but in a way that's like, it exists, and I'm aware, and, you know, I want you to know that I'm aware. So there's a lot of, like, moving parts to this that I can appreciate in this story, so that's what I'd say. And I think that's the most beautiful thing, is being conscious of yes. that privilege constantly, and being able to go ahead and make adjustments, and being able to yeah. say, like, hey... I can't relate, but I'm here to listen and learn and be receptive to that. And I think that's the best way to start allyship, especially. That's huge. I mean, because a lot of the, you know, generational just talking to my parents, it gets combative real quick. And it's just like, wait, there's a middle ground here and we can arrive um, if, we, if we're willing to both hold space for each other. And I just want to say really... Thank you so much. I learned so much today. You know, I, I, I always learn when it comes to consultancy. <laughs> I'm always like, hey, I know I'm going to get more information today. But also recognizing that, you know, in this space, we are discussing feminist, like, issues and understanding that, like, everyone is affected by, yeah. like, these systems of oppression, you know, and that the only way that we can come to a, an agreement or find these solutions is by coming together and, like, talking about it not exclusion so that's why i want to say really thank you for being okay to come on to tell your experiences yeah. with us and in the future maybe <laughs> if you would be willing to come on again you don't I'd have to out to. anybody you can use pseudonyms <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a mustache on him and shades for his identity oh yeah we gotta do that we gotta <laughs> do you have any last words uh for our listeners constancio yes um just that, like, this is a process for me, too. Like, I probably have all these contradictions, and I probably unwittingly say problematic things, but mm -hmm. I hope that I can be held account accountable instead of being called out, called in. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm mindful of that. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm really honored to be here, and I'm glad that I got to talk to you all about masculinity in ways that are productive, generative, and that, you know, the small steps that we do take will actually help make change. Thank you so much. So before we sign off, we, um, this is a two-parter masculinity episode, and so we got a cisgender perspective. Our next one will be from the queer perspective on masculinity <laughs> with Daniel Nero. So stay tuned for this two-parter. And I just want to say thanks to my friends, Rose and Constancio, for always making the show as great as it could be. <laughs> I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit. <laughs> so this is Jean signing off. And this is Rose, and we are... A Panay Podcast. Still disappointing our parents. <laughs>